It's June 11, 2021. I'm Jack Cush, Executive Editor of Room Now. This is the Room Now podcast. This is the best of ULAR 2021. This is my top 12, I think it is, abstracts that I thought you should know about. So let's get into it. First, big congratulations to ULAR and all the drivers of ULAR led by uh, Professor Ian McGinnis. Uh, they did a fabulous job in pulling off yet another virtual meeting. You know, over a two-year span, we will have had two virtual ULARs, two virtual ACRs, one more to go. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for you. It's a challenge for me. But yet these meetings go on, and there's a wealth of information that we can learn from and take forward in our practices. So congratulations to them in putting together um, a really great program and one that you can navigate online and learn a lot from. Um, secondly, a great, congratulations to the Room Now faculty. Uh, I think we had about 12 or 13 faculty, all did a fabulous job. Overall, Room Now was, of course, number one in social media influence. We uh, had 464 tweets. We held the top spot for that. Um, that garners, garnered us about 4.9 million impressions out of a total of about 19 million impressions. So Room Now uh, generated about 25% of the social media content coming out of uh, ULAR. Uh, we wrote over 30 news articles, almost 90 um, videos have appeared. Lord knows how many podcasts there'll be. There'll be many uh, that you can listen to, videos that you can watch. Again, congratulations to a faculty who did a fine job of doing that. The challenge for you is how do you learn this content? I mean, you can listen to these podcasts like this one. Uh, you can listen to other podcasts coming from ULAR21. Um, I think it's good to go to our website and tool around and look at the topics. If you're interested in, in lupus, look at the lupus content. Um, if you're really interested in lupus but don't have a lot of time, click on the PDQ filter, and you can just get down to what we thought was maybe the most important stuff. But I think listening to podcasts, watching videos is another great way. I think if you have limited time, you should look at the panels. I think we have four panel videos that I thought came out really, really good. Um, and uh, I think those are highly instructive and really are a good 15 minutes to listen to. Uh, and what happens in the panel is, is I brought, bring together some of the faculty and myself, and we talk about our favorite abstracts. And there's a lot of crosstalk. And I think that you could do this on your own, whether you're an MSL somewhere or, you know, member of a small group or even your medical school, you can get together and have group discussions on ULAR content. You could use our videos or our um, uh, uh, podcasts or whatever, or even just the, the, the abstracts themselves as fuel for discussion. And to discuss them and to review them, I think is tremendously beneficial. So let me get into what I believe are some of the more interesting abstracts that came from uh, this particular meeting that concluded roughly one week ago. My first abstract is the COSMOS study, wherein guselcomab was given to patients with, who are TNF inhibitors with psoriatic arthritis. As you know, guselcomab is a uh, IL-23 monoclonal antibody. Uh, in this particular study, almost 300 patients were randomized to receive either guselcomab or placebo. They had to be TNF inhibitor um, non-responders to get into the study, and it was clearly shown that this was very, very effective. I think we know when new drugs come out, that they work certainly against placebo as first-time therapies. But will they work when they're given as, you know, second, third, or fourth 
biologics or interventions. And I think that's really uh, important. Their primary endpoint was the ACR20. Um, and uh, again, it was something like 48% versus 20% for those on and off the, the drug. They also noted significant responses with, as regards to the POSI, the skin scores. POSI 100s were really high. As you know, 12, 23, and 23 inhibitors all look great when it comes to skin outcomes and psoriasis. And also uh, sort of doubling of the resolution rate for both enthesitis and dactylitis. Again, I think a nice study um, presented by Laura Coates. That's OP0230. That's the Cosmo study. The next study was the C-Optimize study. That's poster 02229. And what is interesting about this study, sertolizumab is given to patients who have axial spondoarthritis. They take it for 48 weeks, usual dose, usual way, treating AXPA. Those who get to, you know, some great degree of response, like low disease activity, um, uh, and a, a subset of those are then randomized to either continue the drug or to go on placebo. So 736 patients were enrolled in the study. Um, fewer ended up going on uh, for the next 48 weeks where they had blinded therapy and withdrawal of therapy. And what was interesting about this study, um, a lot of the good things happened. Of course, patients who stayed on sertolizumab, either at 200Q two weeks or 200Q four weeks, a lessening of dose, had maintenance of disease activity, low flare rates, et cetera. But those that are on placebo, you know, 25 to 30% of people on placebo had no flare rates. So despite not having any flare rates, the placebo-treated patients still had higher numbers, higher inflammatory biomarkers, higher measures of disease activity, although they didn't qualify as flares. Why am I presenting this? Again, poster 0229. Because I'm kind of against the whole idea of withdrawing therapy. It seems like it's a good idea. Patients want it. It makes your life easier if they're taking a simpler regimen. But the fact is there's always a price to pay. In this case, there's a subclinical price to pay with higher inflammatory markers and higher disease measures, BASDI, ASDAS, whatever. Um, and that means it's going to come around and bite someone in the butt down the road. We have RA studies where the same thing was shown. Patients didn't do really worse, but there was worsening of x-rays. There was worsening of labs. And I, again, I think that, you know, to try to promise this idea of uh, we can successfully remove therapy, um, I think is a pipe dream. We spend our whole careers trying to control these horribly difficult diseases using combinations of drugs, struggling with which is the right biologic or targeted intervention. And when you achieve it, what's your next move? To withdraw it? I don't think so. That's a special kind of stupid. Let's not do that. Again, patients might force your hands at this. There's another abstract by Lucas et al., uh, OP0138, where patients with AXPA in low disease activity state could basically space out their therapies. And they had basically a, almost 400 patients who either continued on their TNF inhibitor or the other half who had spacing. So if it was Enbrel, they went from every one week to every two weeks to every three weeks to every four. Same thing with Umira every two to three to four, whatever. And the bottom line, when they looked at them 12 months later, the spacing group uh, actually were still in low disease activity state almost 88% of the time. Those that weren't spacing on continued therapy were st still in low disease activity state 91% of the time. No difference. 
but you're looking at um, a course endpoint here. This study would say, go right ahead, withdraw therapy, you'll do fine, or space it out, you'll do fine. And spacing probably is better than stopping. But the previous study, the C-Optimize I just talked about and others, suggest there is a price to pay when you do this. Another interesting bit of information comes from abstract uh, poster POS0974, looking at the uh, time to diagnosis. And we've had multiple reports here that there still is an abysmally long referral time and time to diagnosis for patients with spondyloarthritis. I said before, and you should recognize that most of your spa patients and AS patients are not diagnosed by you. They're usually diagnosed by somebody else and you take them over. The question is, how are they getting diagnosed? How are they getting referred? In this particular study, they looked at the, the, the delay in diagnosis from the onset of, of symptoms to the time that they had a diagnosis. And they looked at different time points before 2000, from 2000 to 2010, and then after 2000. And a gigantically um, significant drop in the time, um, such that the uh, proportion of patients um, getting diagnosed with, uh, um, uh, let's say, 75% of patients are diagnosed, and it looks like within two years in the last 10 years. Um, that wasn't the case. It took, actually, it was 16 years, and you still only had 70% of people diagnosed before 2000. The idea is that there is an effort out there, better, better education by you to your colleagues, better advertising, more drugs being developed has resulted in a less of a diagnostic delay. I like this particular uh, abstract that looked at hyperuricemia in patients with psoriatic arthritis. We've, we've written about this before. You know, your psoriasis, bad psoriasis can have hyperuricemia. Patients with psoriasis who have hyperuricemia are at a higher risk of developing gout. In this particular study, they looked at two different cohorts. Uh, it was a retrospective analysis of 242 patients. 168, 169 had normal uric acids but 73 did not. What were the differences between those that had hyperuricemia with psoriatic arthritis? Well, there were many more females in this group, 73% versus 39 in the normal uricemic group. Um, there were many more with polyarticular disease, 57% versus 42%. There were many more cases of destructive PSA, 57 versus 35 or something like that. Um, and again, they had a lot more comorbidity. So I think what the point of this is that your PSA patients who are running around with hyperuricemia, they're amongst your worst PSA patients. Take heed, take note, treat them aggressively. Let's move on to lupus. Anaphrolabab, we talked about it at ACR last year, and last year ULR, you know, the toast of the town were the TULIP studies. TULIP 1 kind of looked good, but didn't meet its primary endpoint. End TULIP 2, little machinations in outcome measures, but it didn't seem to matter. They all did good, much better in TULIP 2, meeting primary endpoints and many endpoints. Is there enough data on hand for anaphrolamab, a drug that tar targets the type 1 or alpha interferon receptor? Is there enough data on hand to get this drug approved? You know, the phase 2 looked really good. That was reported by Dr. Fury. The phase 3, TULIP 1, by Dr. Fury didn't look so good. The phase three tool of two did look good. But now we got another study um, that actually might help us make a decision. But before I tell you about that study, there was a sub-analysis of tulip one and tulip two looking specifically at what improved. And what improved in this abstract, OP0131, 
was that joints and skin improved. So they looked at just skin and joint outcomes, which is a big part of the, the improvement anyway in those patients in those trials where the primary endpoint was an SRI4 or a BICLA outpoint, uh, endpoint. And here when they looked at sleet uh, 2 k rash outcomes, um, patients on the, the antibody, anafrolimab, did much better than those on placebo. 38% actually had resolution versus 25%. Turns out that most of those resolutions were in people who actually had the type 1 interferon signature. You would think that patients who express a lot of type 1 alpha interferon are going to be the ones who are going to respond to this. Well, the other studies, TULIP 1, TULIP 2, it didn't matter. But in these studies, looking at just skin and joint, it does matter. So if you didn't have the type 1 signature uh, or the gene uh, signaling for or, um, uh, evidence that interferon was active in that patient, um, it didn't help you as far as a skin or a joint outcome, but it did help if you did have the signature as far as skin and joint. I thought that was important. The, the, the maybe a new pivotal study that will help make the FDA's mind up about whether this drug should be approved or not is abstract poster POS0961, a phase two trial of uh, anaphrolimab in lupus nephritis patients. These are patients with class three, four, three and four, or class four with five. No pure class fives. They had a total of, uh, of 150 or so patients, and they get randomized to either placebo. They're on background therapies, steroids, mycophenolate, et cetera. But they either get randomized to placebo or the usual dose of anaphrolimab, 300 milligrams every four weeks IV, or what was called an intensive regimen where they got like three doses or 900 milligrams uh, followed by 300 milligrams. The bottom line is this didn't work. Its primary endpoint, when you looked at all patients taking anaphrolimab, showed it did not meet its primary endpoint of a significant lowering of the urine-to-protein-creatinine ratio over baseline levels. Turns out it was significant for those who got the intensive regimen, but not those who got the usual dose. So is that a positive, maybe, in a sub-analysis? But it was a negative as far as the primary endpoint. Will that hurt them? We don't know. The FDA hasn't made a decision about whether they're going to have a hearing about this or not. You know, we're all dealing with COVID still. We're dealing with, you know, trying to get everybody vaccinated. And the question is, what do we do with our patients with vaccination? Should we be getting our patients vaccinated? My answer is yes, everybody should get vaccinated. There's a nice study from Israel uh, presented by Fuhrer et al. This is a late-breaking abstract, 0003. It was presented on Saturday looking at the immunogenicity and responses to the Pfizer Bion uh, um, Tech antibody, um, BNT162B2, like you're going to remember that. Um, anyway, they gave this to over 680 patients who had rheumatic disease, RA, lupus, PSA, vasculitis, myositis, etc., to see what would happen. Now, I don't know about you, but my policy has been vaccinate everybody. I have not been stopping any therapy like the ACR has recommended. That's based on conjecture to some degree. Um, I applaud them for their efforts and their strategy is just as good as mine until someone proves one or the other right. So, um, except I don't vaccinate people who need rituximab. Rituximab, you need to wait six months, maybe 12 months to do this. Anyway, in their study, all patients, all comers, 680, looking at immunogenicity as measured by um, uh, spike protein antibodies two weeks to six weeks after their second dose. 
85% of rheumatic disease patients did achieve an immunogenic response, 85%. That was impressive. Um, 86% if you want to be exact. 100% of controls also met their, that endpoint. Now, who did not amongst our patients? Turns out that elderly were less likely to achieve that. RA patients, myositis patients, and ANCA-associated vasculitis patients were less likely to achieve, to achieve maybe like 30 40% for RA and, uh, and PSA, and much less with myositis and ANCA, you know, uh, ANCA vasculitis. Now, we know RA patients, so we know a lot of our autoimmune patients have less of a humoral response to the vaccine anyway, so some of this is not surprising. What was the effect of drug therapy? Turns out, largely no significant effect for steroids, methotrexate, TNF inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors, and JAK inhibitors with or without methotrexate. The drugs that had a significant drop in immunogenic responses were anybody taking anti-CD20 monoclonal, um, any patients who are on ABA plus methotrexate, and, and maybe less so ABA, ABA monotherapy, and also mycophenolate. Now, this is different than what I'm going to tell you in one of the next posters. So those are people who you may have to rethink who you hold your therapy on. I'm still clear about what to do with rituximab. Um, I'm a little up in the air with my abatacips. Um, uh, this says that you could probably continue your JAK inhibitors and give the, the, the vaccine. The, um, uh, the other thing about this particular study is they did present data about flare rates. Over 80% of patients did not flare. Um, there was, you know, anywhere from a 5 to 19% flare rate by different measures with RA, lupus. Um, uh, lupus might have been the least likely to flare. Looks like RA, PSA um, might have been more likely to flare. But again, these are low numbers. Um, the abstract I was going to talk about, but it's not on here, is uh, a GRA abstract where they actually gave you the latest data on drugs associated with poor outcomes, poor outcomes being hospitalization and deaths. And they showed what they've been saying lately, rituximab's a bad player, but they also showed JAK inhibitors in there. And I don't know what to make of that. Of course, you gotta remember, the room patients who have been enrolled in the Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry are a select group of room patients who had COVID. They came to your attention, so they might have much higher rates of hospitalizations. Um, did they get enrolled because they're patients you worry about because they've had bad disease and you're on, you have them on aggressive therapies? So anyway, there's a suspicion in this. This is the first signal I've seen where Jacks didn't fare all that well. It's not enough for me to change my practices, but I am concerned about that and need to see more research going forward. Um, there was a nice study of ILD, a lot about ILD in rheumatoid arthritis at this particular study. Um, abstract OP0099 looked at mortality rates in a national cohort of RA patients, uh, over 173,000 RA patients, 2.5% have ILD. A lot of studies have shown that the rate of ILD increases over time and can be go from as little as 2 or 3% to as high as 7%. But the bottom line in this study is that if you had RA ILD, your mortality was significantly impacted. Uh, you had a three-and-a-half-fold higher risk of death if you had RAILD, um, there were such patients with, were, and it could be because the RAILDs were less likely to receive DMARDs. They were less likely to be on methotrexate, 30 versus 
They were more likely to be on steroids. All contributory factors to bad outcomes in RA. Not good. Again, lung disease in RA is something we should be worrying about. Um, this abstract was brought to my attention by Peter Nash, friend and colleague from Down Under. This is POS 0223. Um, it's the OPAL data set looking at um, switching JAK inhibitors in RA patients in practice. Um, and this is what's going on in Australia. Tofacitinib was approved in October 2015, baricitinib in September 2018, upatacitinib in May 2020. They show that since 2017, the rate of TNF inhibitor use has dropped from like 73% down into the low 50s, and that the rate of JAK inhibitor use has um, increased significantly from like less than 25% to probably around close to 35%. So um, as of 2020, JAKs comprise about 45% of all indications. Uh, and the interesting thing is that in the last year, the uptake of upatacitinib um, has been brisk and taking up about 75% of all switches from one JAK inhibitor to enough. So they have a lot of JAK switching going on since 2017. Um, but in the last year, most of that has been switching to UPA. Is that marketing? Is that some of the new safety concerns regarding um, tofacitinib that have not been fully worked out? We don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if the same numbers are occurring here in the United States. Um, my last abstract actually has to do with the BEAT lupus study. Um, this is a sequential use uh, therapy study. Uh, where patients receive rituximab first, followed by maintenance belimumab. This is abstract OP0129 um, by Shippa and colleagues, a one-year study where they got two infusions of rituximab, followed by monthly infusions of belimumab or placebo. The primary endpoint in the study was, was a reduction in double-stranded DNA titers. I don't know why they would choose that. That's not truly predictive of outcomes in lupus, but nonetheless... It's a small study. It's only 52 patients. And they did show that the patients on belimumab uh, had a significant reduction in uh, IgG, double-stranded DNA antibody titers at 52 weeks compared to baseline levels. But more importantly, they showed that the belimumab-treated patients were also less likely to have bilag A flares, suggesting that there might be some um, rationale to this. You know, when you give uh, rituximab, the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, there is a rebound in uh, BAF release, and maybe that drives a lot of future um, B-cell activity and can negate the effects of, of rituximab, but then coming in with an anti-BAF, which is what belimumab is, and, and, and abrogating all that, maybe then gives you the full effect of the rituximab plus the belimumab together. Again, this is a pilot trial. Um, amongst all my friends and colleagues I talked to about this in the last week, nobody actually has done this in their practice. I wouldn't recommend you doing it. But there is a larger trial, hopefully going forward, that will answer this question about the smarter, better use of belimumab, maybe after uh, other therapies as induction protocols. Um, hope you enjoyed the ULAR review. Um, tune into Room Now. We'll come back with our usual podcast next week. If you have any questions or comments, um, please go to Backtalk and Record your question or comment, and we'll feature it here on next week's podcast. You can, as you know, you can follow um, all our podcasts on our podcast channels and, and, our, and on our website. Take good care. Bye-bye.